Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. In today's show, UW President Dick McGinnity is working to smooth things over after the questionable detention of some campus visitors. As for the upset that was caused, I'm sorry about that. And about how law enforcement in Sweetwater County is turning to a powerful addiction treatment drug to keep offenders sober and out of jail. If we can get them uh, detoxed and get them working, it's a lot better deal for the uh, community. Torrington may lose its iconic sugar factory, but local officials are optimistic that they will overcome the blow. When I'm trying to recruit other industries, I'm able to leverage that workforce. We'll also hear an interview with animal welfare advocate Temple Grandin. Those stories and more are all coming up on Open Spaces on Wyoming Public Radio. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Back in September, six Native American high schoolers from the Wind River Reservation were detained by University of Wyoming police after a customer in the campus bookstore suspected one of the students of shoplifting. Administrators and parents at St. Stephen's School quickly raised concerns that the students' rights had been violated. After weeks of back and forth, the incident and its handling remains a point of tension between Wyoming's university and its Wind River Reservation. Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Schrank reports. The six male high school seniors were visiting UW along with 600 other prospective students for a weekend event called Campus Pass. They planned to tour campus and watch a cowboy football game. And we got there in the morning and we had some free time to go walk around and check things out, so we went to the campus bookstore. Caleb Grosbeck, his classmates, and their chaperones wore matching white t-shirts with St. Stephen's Indian High School printed on them in red. While the kids split up and browsed the store, another visitor told employees she saw someone in a St. Stephen's shirt stealing merchandise. We were just looking at things, and then we seen these guys get searched, so went to go check it out, and then they searched us too. I got searched three times. After the first time I searched it, I felt like I, I shouldn't be searched again. That's Briley Shakespeare and Jaron Arthur. Bookstore employees rummaged through some bags of UW swag they'd received on their campus visit. Unable to identify a suspect, they searched all six students and found no evidence of shoplifting. Mikla Oldman thought that would be the end of it. And like, they searched us and they're like, okay, you guys are all good. There's nothing in there. And then like we're just walking around again. But the employees had called UWPD. When an officer arrived at the bookstore, she rounded up the kids again. No more searches, but old man says it was embarrassing. I just didn't like how they stopped us in front of everyone and everyone just kept looking at us like we did something. Made it seem like we were actually stealing something or like criminals or something. The officer then detained the students and chaperones in a conference room for about an hour. She took down the students' information, ran their names in a law enforcement database, and tried to call some of their parents. Uh, I, just, I just kept asking if we are in trouble, and, and they said no, so I, was like, I just asked, why do you need my information? They just said it's policy or whatever. UWPD says it's policy to call the parents of any minors they make contact with, even if nobody's in trouble. The officer's report shows she made contact with one parent. Taylor Littleshield, who is 18, says that was his mom. Uh, she texted me right after and said, were you still in? So I 
almost got in trouble for not stealing. So. <laughs> From the initiation of this entire situation, what the students and, and their families were looking for was just for an apology. They felt offended. St. Stephen's High School Principal Cheryl Myers wrote a letter to UW expressing concerns about the search and detention. One student's relative told university officials she believed racial profiling had occurred. UW investigated and 10 days after the incident released a report claiming there was no evidence of racial bias. Myers says the investigation missed the point. So I was anticipating a broader scope of, of looking and identifying whether the search was legitimized and the detention was legitimized, not necessarily whether it was racial profiling or discrimination. UWPD responded to only three other suspected shoplifting incidents at the campus bookstore in the past 12 months. None involved juveniles. Police Chief Mike Samp says bookstore employees followed protocols. And while his officer found no probable cause to cite anyone for anything, her detention of the students was by the book. Since some of these individuals were juveniles, we do make an attempt to contact parents just to explain the nature of that contact by law enforcement and alleviate any concerns that they might have. The officer that did get sent over to the bookstore to investigate that situation acted appropriately. She acted within policy, um, and there's certainly nothing improper about what she did. I am satisfied that there were no laws broken. UW President Dick McGinnity has met with St. Stephen's administrators twice since the incident. There was not racial profiling. There was not violation of uh, civil rights or state law, for that matter. Having said that, there were things that were done by the university or that happened in the bookstore that I would say, in hindsight, could have been handled somewhat better. And as for the upset that was caused, I'm sorry about that. McGinnity says some of the policies at play here should be reexamined, like the multiple searches and the detaining kids for an hour with no evidence to call their parents. He said as much in a letter to Principal Cheryl Myers one month after the incident. McGinnity says he wants to mend UW's relationship with the St. Stephen's students, all six of whom were looking to apply to UW. Would you still be considering UW? Um, yeah, I would. Uh, I would too. I'm still undecided. No. I'm undecided too. Well, I guess what's uncertain about UW for you guys after experiencing this thing at the bookstore? Being cheated like that again. The St. Stephen's School Board is still reviewing President McGinnity's letter, as well as bookstore surveillance footage, before responding. They next meet later this month. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Aaron Schrank. Drug and alcohol abuse is a huge problem in Wyoming. The DUI rate here is double the national average, and adults and children get arrested for drug crimes at a significantly higher rate than the rest of the country. Jail time is expensive, and experts say by itself doesn't do much to address substance abuse issues. So law enforcement in Sweetwater County is trying something different. They're offering offenders a powerful but pricey addiction treatment drug. Wyoming Public Radio's Miles Bryan went to Sweetwater County and has this report. 26-year-old Cameron Largent lives with his mom in Rock Springs. Most afternoons, he's deep into the video game World of Warcraft. So my job is to run around and heal people that need healed. What level are you? Uh, I'm as high as you can get, which is 100. Largent has had a lot of time to level up recently. He's not drinking for the first time in years. By the time he was 16, he says he was drunk four nights a week. 18, I was drunk every single night. 19, 20 years old, I was just drinking all day, every day. 
Largent was in and out of jail for DUIs and a burglary charge and spent years in different kinds of treatment programs. It was while in jail a few months ago that Largent was selected to be part of a trial program using Vivitrol, a monthly shot that treats alcohol and opiate addiction. He got his first shot on his last day in jail about a month ago and says the effect was immediate. Before, if he heard someone open, say, a can of soda. The first thing that enters my brain is somebody's drinking a beer and I want a beer. After the Vivitrol, things like that, triggers like that, they just didn't even enter my mind. You know, the craving isn't there. Now, Largent is trying to get a job at a local coffee shop. Turnarounds like his are what has motivated law enforcement across the country to start offering Vivitrol in jails and drug courts. The drug's maker says it has donated doses of the drug to about 30 programs since Vivitrol was FDA-approved in 2006. It donated enough free doses to Sweetwater County earlier this year to give 25 offenders like Largent a shot on their way out of jail and a shot a month later. Local addiction specialist Dr. Alina Cherniak says there are two big things that make Vivitrol different than other treatments on the market. It binds to an opioid receptor and blocks other opioids from binding to that receptor. Meaning the drug shuts down your cravings. And even if you use drugs or have a drink after getting a shot of Vivitrol, you won't feel buzzed. But the main reason that Vivitrol stands out is how you take it, just once a month. It eliminates the concerns that we have in medicine with patient compliance, meaning it doesn't require a patient to remember to take the medication. That once-a-month dose is most helpful for people with the most ferocious addictions, like many of those incarcerated at the Sweetwater County Detention Center. We're going down here where we have the uh, adult facility. Sergeant Gerald Carr supervises inmates here. This jail has about 225 beds. They cost taxpayers 125 bucks a night each. And Carr says most of them are usually filled with people in for alcohol and drug-related crime. Uh, we've raised some of these people actually from the juvenile into here. They've come from juvenile, starting out with their drugs and their drinking, their stealing and stuff, and now they're over on the adult side. Rock Springs Chief of Police Dwayne Pacheco says this revolving door of substance abuse-fueled crime is what motivated local law enforcement to get on board with the Vivitrol program. The problem is Vivitrol is pricey. Without any subsidies, it costs about $1,200 per shot. But by the time their free doses run out, Pacheco hopes to convince state lawmakers that the program is worth funding. If we can get them uh, detoxed and get them working, it's a lot better deal for the, uh, for the community. But the bigger problem is how to keep offenders from relapsing when they stop getting free doses of the drug. I, th I think it's probably more expensive even with insurance than, than many clients can afford. Terrence Walton is with the National Association of Drug Court Professionals. He says Vivitrol costs a lot more than other drugs that treat the same kinds of addictions. And because of that, the public clinics that ex-addicts tend to go to often don't stock it. And he says Vivitrol alone is not a long-term solution. It's not a wonder drug. Uh, when it is truly effective is when it's used in combination with counseling uh, to address the underlying issues. Back at the computer in his mom's basement, Cameron Largent says he hopes his routine of Vivitrol and counseling will be enough to stay sober. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Miles Bryan. Coming up, we'll talk with Jeff O'Gara. He's the producer about a documentary involving former Vice President Dick Cheney. This is Open Spaces.
Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Next Friday, Wyoming PBS will air its long-awaited documentary called Dick Cheney, A Heartbeat Away. Producer Jeff O'Gara joins us and says the two-year effort was interesting. I asked O'Gara about the challenge of doing a documentary about someone that most people have an opinion about. Sure, and there are expectations. I mean, people hear that you're doing a documentary and that you're based in Wyoming, and they say, oh, well, that's going to be a puff piece about Dick Cheney, of course. So we worked hard and really had to work hard to establish our credentials with both the pro and con people in Dick Cheney's life. The other challenge in doing a documentary about him is that it's a long public life. I mean, his career spans, as you know, uh, time uh, in the House of Representatives, uh, rising to a fairly high leadership position. He was Secretary of Defense. He was in the private sector at Halliburton and then became vice president. I mean, this is a career that's covered all kinds of interesting twists and turns. Did you, your impression about him change, or I guess, what, what are your thoughts on, on him after dealing with him all these months? Well, a couple of things. I mean, first, you know, and I think every journalist does who's dealt with the vice president, that he, he is a good interview, but also a tough interview at times. You need to go in prepared. You need to be ready for someone who's going to look you in the eye, and if you ask a question that's a little vague or a little off-center, he's going to correct you. Uh, you learn that as a young journalist when I, I first covered him and he was in the House of Representatives. Uh, and i, I got to say, even though you get to know him pretty well after all these years, uh, he still does it. Uh, there was one point when I was interviewing him about his years in graduate school and the deferments he got, and I, I said, you know, this is something people wonder about when you become Secretary of Defense, that uh, during the Vietnam War you got these draft deferments people really want to know. And he looked at me for a moment and he said, well, I don't know that people want to know that, Jeff. <laughs> and he just kind of stops you cold for a moment. But then there's a little smile and the interview continues. And I think when you get to know his way, uh, he actually is a fairly cooperative interview. I mean, we did hours and hours of interview. We covered everything. Nothing was off limits. Um, he was candid. Uh, he was you know, at times very funny. He can he can be a very amusing man in an interview. Yeah, let me um, push the and button. He went, going. You know, yep. he went into a lot of delved into a lot of issues that we wanted to cover. Okay, Jeff. Well, one of the things that might be interesting for folks uh, to, is to talk a little bit about what it's like to interview the vice president. Uh, what, was it difficult to get him to, I, I guess, be forthright with a lot of things? Uh, I would say he's forthright in his own way, and and I would contrast that, say, with Al Simpson's way of being forthright. I mean, Dick Cheney's a smart man. He, we know he's got a great set of nerves under fire, but he's not a deeply reflective man. So, uh, you know, he doesn't admit to a lot of second thoughts about much of anything, even the toughest decisions that he made during his career. And in an interview, that, that sometimes seems like a little bit of a challenge. How do you get him to dig deep? On the other hand, he's got a prodigious memory. Uh, his memory for detail is extraordinary. And so when you talk about the events of a big historic event like 9-11, or you go way back and talk about, uh, say, the Wyoming Wilderness Bill, uh, you'll remember details that um, you wouldn't expect anybody after all these years to still have fresh in their head. So in that sense, he's a very good interview uh, in the sense of getting him to sort of bare his soul and, and uh, you know, dig deep into the dark corners. I think you have to go to Al Simpson for that. Would you say 9-11 is the thing that has impacted him the most? I think everybody thinks that. Uh, he would be very quick to say 
you know, I didn't change at 9-11 or in that time, that time period, the world changed. But uh, it's what everybody asks about. It's what everybody looks at. You know, is this the same guy that was defense secretary back in the early 1990s when 9-11 came around? Uh, did it change him? Had he already changed in some way himself? Uh, I think everybody, and this would probably include you and me, would say, you know, 9-11 changed us. It changed the United States. It's its place in the world the way we deal with uh, terrorist threats. And, of course, Dick Cheney was right there in, in the middle of the action. So if anybody's going to be changed by that, he was. He was at the White House. Uh, there were reports that there was a plane coming for the White House. And, uh, you know, that this is a famous story where they took him into a bunker. But you had a chance to visit with him about that. Uh, tell us about that conversation. Well, it was really interesting because you think you're working over a well-worn uh, patch of information here. Everybody's written about 9-11. There are books and books about it, lots of stories told. And then you're talking to the vice president, and you learn something you didn't know before, and this is a good example. He's in the bunker. He's been hustled down there. There's lots of action, and an Air Force official comes to him and says, Mr. Vice President, there is a plane coming towards Washington. We think it's headed either for the Capitol or the White House. What should we do? He says without hesitation, shoot it down. The Air Force representative comes back to him again twice and asks the same question, just seeking really solid confirmation. Uh, he doesn't hesitate. Once again, he says, shoot it down. Well, the planes are sent up, and during our interview, he reveals that uh, the planes were sent up unarmed. Uh, this is a bit of a shock. I mean, they're there to defend the nation's capital. Uh, they're up in the air, ready to stop this, uh, this jetliner coming in and they're unarmed. I checked this with Donald Rumsfeld when we interviewed him. He said, yes, yes, they were unarmed. Uh, it, in addition, the vice president said one of them actually flew out to sea. They didn't even know quite where to go. So there were moments like that in the interviews and moments when we were talking about a big event like 9-11 when you learn something you didn't know before that's interesting, a little shocking. Uh, and again, the vice president was very candid about everything, everything that happened on that day. This is somebody who, you know, obviously when you get to be vice president, it's uh, it's a remarkable accomplishment personally. But, you know, just the fact that he even got into elected office, it seems like a surprise because when you look back at his history, I mean, there was it, a point where he was going to be an educator. Wasn't that right? Well, I'd go even further back, Bob, and say, you know, there was a point when he was going to be in the drunk tank in Rock Springs. Uh, I mean... If you think about uh, Dick Cheney's history, and in a way it's, it is kind of a Wyoming political script, you know, there's the, the dissolute periods of his youth. There are things that he did that he regrets, but that he overcame and, and moved up. And yeah, he, at a very young age, he was chief of staff for Gerald Ford in the White House, um, eventually decided he didn't want to be tied to someone else running for elective office. He wanted to run himself, so he came back to Wyoming and got elected to the House. And he was a fast-rising Republican star in the House of Representatives, uh, you know, destined to be certainly minority leader and possibly Speaker of the House someday if the Republicans got the majority. When he was tapped to become Secretary of Defense after uh, Senator John Tower had to drop out, um, and suddenly his, his life took another turn, Interestingly, when he describes that moment of being called to the White House and going to sit with George H.W. Bush and talk about this position, 
he says, again, there were never any second thoughts. He knew that he was on a, on a very good trajectory in the House, but the opportunity to be Secretary of Defense was one he wouldn't hesitate to take. He took it. Uh, again, no doubts, no looking back. Dick Cheney, A Heartbeat Away, will air on Wyoming PBS Friday, November 13th at 8 o'clock, and then it will re-air at 9.30. And our thanks to producer Jeff O'Gara for joining us. In the next segment, we'll talk to Temple Grandin and visit the city of Torrington, where two major employers are shutting down. This is Open Spaces. to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. In recent years, the meatpacking industry has been adopting more humane treatment of livestock. And that's thanks in no small part to one woman, Temple Grandin. In her many books, she writes about applying her own experiences as a person with autism to how animals view the world. The U.S. Department of Agriculture even uses a checklist developed by Grandin to enforce better treatment. And She's had a film made about her life. Grandin recently spoke at the Laramie County Public Library. Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards sat down with her and asked her how she learned to understand the minds of animals. I think in pictures. I thought everybody thought in pictures. I didn't know that my thinking was different. And I noticed that cattle would balk at a shadow, balk at a distraction, balk at a coat on a fence. And when I first brought that up, people thought that was really kind of crazy. And I just assumed that, yeah, everybody thought the way I did. Then when I learned that most people don't think visually as much as I do, then, then I could understand maybe why they weren't seeing the distractions. Yeah. And so how, what was your kind of your method of discovering that? Well, I got down in the chutes and I still saw what the cattle were seeing. And I could see that they could see a car or they could see a rope across the top of the chute or there was a reflection on some water. And I made sure I got my head right down at the same height as the cattle. So that was some of the first things that I did. And... Back in the 70s, that was real radical stuff. I mean, now uh, it's routine. We have a lot of small um, family farms still and ranches, and we do a lot of more of a cow and calf operation. Well, that's right, yes. What, what kind of advice would you have for, for folks that are doing smaller things? What, what kind of things can they do to help their animals feel less stress? Well, there's been great improvements in handling. So, I mean, back in the 70s, there was no such thing as that. It was put the electric prod on every single animal. It was just terrible. You know, gradually now, people are getting much more interested in low-stress stockmanship. I think that's really, really a good thing. You know, there's still some people out there doing it the old way. Now, the first thing people have got to do is to simply calm down and stop yelling. That's the first thing you have to do. There's a lot of things you need to learn about stockmanship, but until you calm down and stop yelling, you're not going to be able to learn those other things because you'll have the cattle too frightened and too stirred up. What are some of the big improvements since you've been in this industry? Well, the thing that made the biggest improvement was in 1999 and 2000, working with the meatpacking plants, initiating the McDonald's audits. And I developed a very simple scoring system, kind of like traffic rules for slaughter plants. If more than 1% of the animals fall down anywhere in the facility, you fail. If more than three cattle out of 100 are mooing in the stun box, you fail. We had to do a lot of things like put in non-slip flooring, change lighting, animals are afraid of the dark, add a light, the animals would walk up the chute. 
and I saw more improvement in 99 and 2000 than I'd seen in a 25-year career prior to that. Yeah. What, what financial benefit is there to them to, to pass this audit and to have a more humane treatment? Well, the last five minutes before slaughter, you can really mess up the meat. When pigs that get excited, get squealing and jamming and electric prods all over them, they're going to have more pale, soft, watery meat. Cattle poked with electric prods in the last five minutes are going to have more tough meat also with large animal like cattle, there are safety advantages to um, handling animals quietly. You know, one of the things that I thought I would talk to you a little bit about is your opinion of kind of this movement towards grass-fed beef. What's your thoughts on that? First of all, the two sectors need to stop attacking each other. They both have a place. And um, handling's really improved. The slaughter, USDA has gotten a lot more strict now on enforcing humane slaughter. Things have really improved, but a lot of younger consumers don't know that things have improved. Because there's this website you can go to the USDA and they put down every sort of speeding ticket a plant gets, and it makes things look really bad. But if that website had been around 20 years ago, it would have been 10 times worse. The bad old days were really atrocious. Is there something that uh, those kind of big companies can learn from this grass-fed? Well, approach? they're both, you know, legitimate parts of the, of the market, and it's been any more and more attacks on the sustainability of beef. And I'm, I've done a lot of thinking about that. Actually, the animal welfare issues are much easier to fix. I can fix the animal welfare issues, but you know, sustainability. Now we have a huge amount of land in this country where the only way we can raise food on that land is grazing animals. Another really interesting thing I learned last year when I went to a crop seminar, I had some real insight. I learned that the molly soils in Iowa and Illinois, the very best farm soils were created by vast herds of grazing animals. They are part of the ecosystem. And we need to be you know, raising food off, off of this land. Is there um, you know, uh, a, a way in which we might be kind of outgrowing that whole idea of feedlots and finishing cattle off in that way? That well, we, that we looking at the whole sustainability that. thing, why do we start feeding grain to cattle? We had surpluses, and it was cheap. And it evens out your cattle supply. Now, as long as grain is available, yeah, you're going to feed it. Now, if it gets to the point where it's not available, then obviously you're not going to feed it. But right now, it's available. So do you, do you feel like, that, you know, as long as, as, long as we have uh, cheap grain, feedlots are going to stick around? Well, yeah, as long as, we have, as long as the grain's available. And the thing is, shutting down feed yards is not going to feed people in war-torn areas of the world. They're not going to be available to, to buy the grain. To feed right. this many people in the world, we need feed, the, this system needs to, to continue. Well, yeah, because the, right now we've got the grain surpluses, so uh, you might as well go ahead and feed it. I feel very strongly we've got to give animals, you know, a good life worth living. And beef cattle, when they're done right out on pasture, they've definitely got, a, you know, a life worth a living. All right. Thank you so much. Okay, I appreciate it. You. Okay. That was animal welfare advocate Temple Grandin. She's currently a professor of animal sciences at Colorado State University. Torrington had been on an economic upswing. A few years back, the state awarded it the medium security prison, and the downtown has undergone a facelift with some new businesses. But in recent months, two companies announced they are closing their doors. One is viewed as a minor setback, while the other could change the face of the community. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck explains. When you drive north into Torrington on Highway 85, you see an iconic place. Since 1926, the Sugar Beet Factory, currently owned by Western Sugar Cooperative, has been a mainstay of the local economy. 
Now is the busy season for the plant and you can hear it hum. Torrington is a small agriculture town of 7,000 people, and according to Gilbert Cervantes, who is the manager of the Torrington Workforce Services Center, the sugar factory has been a major employer. Western Sugar uh, supports uh, right around 75 to maybe 80 full-time employees at any given time. And then seasonal uh, can vary as well from 150 to maybe 180 seasonal workers. But those jobs are in jeopardy after Western Sugar announced it was shutting down its Torrington operation in the next couple of years with plans to expand facilities in Nebraska and Colorado. Then this fall, due to low oil prices, Wyoming Ethanol said it was closing its doors, and some 25 people lost their jobs. Cervantes has been busy helping the ethanol workers find work, but the sugar workers could be a challenge. That there are then possibilities that we can work with a handful of these folks that are, are willing to, to be retrained. Uh, you know, we need to be uh, pretty creative with that. Wally Wolski has been heavily involved in Goshen County Ventures for many years, and he's currently the president of the Local Economic Development Board. He says it will especially impact local ag producers who work part-time for the company during the harvest. The biggest concern I have is a lot of families have depended upon that campaign work from um, you know about the 1st of October to about the 1st of January every year for supplemental income. In a lot of cases, um, that was what got families through the, through the winter. And so you can't replace uh, those jobs that are there seasonally. Torrington Mayor Mike Varney says he and others continue to work with Western Sugar to try and convince them to stay. He says if they leave, it will certainly be a blow but the community will survive. You could get depressed about it, but uh, my attitude is, you know, we've just got to keep pushing on. We still have WMCI, the Wyoming Medium Correctional Institute. We've got Eastern Wyoming College. We have Banner Health. Uh, we could be worse off, but do we want anybody to leave? No, absolutely not. But one person who sees this as an opportunity is Goshen County Economic Development Director Ashley Harpstreet. Harpstreet is new to the job, but she's been busy reacting to the announcement by trying to recruit several companies over the last few months. She points to a remodeled Ben Franklin store that's now the site of a popular coffee shop, store, and local visitor center as just one example of Torrington's vibrant downtown. She says they are ready for new businesses. We have a couple of industrial parks that are shovel ready. Um, the infrastructure's here. We're ready for industry to come, and now we might have some t workforce to leverage as well. One problem for small communities is to convince companies they have enough local workers for them. She says companies are interested in those Western sugar workers who may soon need jobs. When I'm trying to recruit other industries, I'm able to leverage that workforce and show that we have an available workforce um, that's ready to go to work and eager to go to work when we are looking at big manufacturing companies coming in, which is our target market. Meanwhile, Harp Street says the Wyoming ethanol facility is attracting a lot of interest from entrepreneurs. We have a ton of people interested right now. Um, I'm daily on the phone with someone about Wyoming ethanol. Many in the downtown business community are equally optimistic, mostly because they say business has never been better. 
Torrington features popular clothing stores that attract people from neighboring communities and even a new bakery started by a local doctor called the Bread Doctor. Owner Esden Flukiger thoughtfully prepares his goods and says everything will be okay. That's going to happen. This place is seen. But I don't think the prison is going anywhere. And we have to have schools and we have to have hospitals and we have to have food. If we can pay the lights and we can pay the help, and I don't have to delve into my personal finances to make the business run, then I'll consider it a success. Since Western Sugar is in full harvest mode, the community has time. And local officials believe potential new businesses will see what they see. A small town with a lot going on. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. If the entire Greenland ice cap were to melt, scientists predict sea levels would rise more than 20 feet. Climate change is speeding up melting of the ice sheet, but it's not clear by how much. The New York Times recently profiled one of the few research projects taking direct measurements to answer that question. One of the researchers is University of Wyoming graduate student Brandon Overstreet. He's a doctoral candidate in hydrology. Overstreet told Wyoming Public Radio's Stephanie Joyce that the purpose of the research is to figure out how much meltwater from the surface of the ice sheet is actually making its way to the ocean. What does it look like there? On the surface of the ice sheet is this really complex network of streams and lakes that form each summer during the melt season. And the rivers will flow onto the surface of the ice, and then they'll terminate in these moulins, which are just these vertical waterfalls into the ice sheet. And so instead of just being this featureless landscape, in fact, the, the surface of the Greenland ice sheet is very dynamic and pretty spectacular. The rivers are just these brilliant color of blue and the lakes even, they almost look tropical, but you're surrounded by ice. I would imagine slightly less pleasant to jump into. Yes, yeah, it's not recommended. Actually my job centered around keeping people out of the water. The New York Times story opens with a pretty dramatic scene of you clipping in uh, your climbing harness to an ice anchor and then dangling over the edge of one of these streams that, I think as the article put it, if you fell in would uh, result in a 100% fatality rate. Can you explain a little bit why you were doing that? So what we were doing is we're measuring discharge on the river. And in order to do that, we needed to deploy an instrument on the water. It's essentially a boogie board with a what's it called an acoustic Doppler current profiler that um, sends pings into the water. And based on those, uh, the reflection of those pings can um, tell us how deep the water is as well as how fast the water is moving. But in order to get those measurements, the instrument has to be put in the water. So the reason I had to kind of get close to the water's edge was actually put the boat in the water. Why is having this on-the-ground information so critical? You know, we have models for how ice melts on the surface. And now we're at the point where we can start to ask the question is, like, how well are the models working? A uh, professor taught me early on that, you know, every model is wrong, but some are useful. Um, so we're trying to get a, a picture of the, the Greenland ice sheet hydrology. We're trying to piece all this together from, you know, the ice turning to water flowing down into these giant moulins, 
transversing through kilometers of ice um, to the base of the ice sheet where it's eventually expelled as these raging rivers that um, eventually go to the ocean. And so just to be really clear, the water that's going into the ice sheet may not be the same volume as the water that's going out of the ice sheet because it could be refreezing inside of the ice sheet. It could be what are what are the options for what's happening with the water inside the ice sheet? Yeah, the refreezing issue is um, definitely one that's come up in the last couple of years, which would lead to a pretty significant delay between what we're seeing on the ice surface and what's coming out of the ice. So I think the take-home point is that the the Greenland ice sheet is incredibly complex. It's not just these rivers that flow into a pipe that drains directly through the ice. The the New York Times story really was interesting because of one, all of the imagery that they included, and two, because I don't think we normally get to go behind the scenes of science in that way. I guess I'm curious how you felt about the, the profile and, uh, and what it says about the, the work that you are doing. It, it does such a good job of illuminating that environment. The article is, um, it, it's nice too that it portrays scientists as real people on the ground. My hope is that the article puts a face on the data that we're collecting that it makes it a little more difficult to simply dismiss as you know data that some scientists are sitting at their computer making up in order to you know come up with these facts about climate change. Yeah, obviously climate change still generates quite a bit of controversy especially in places like Wyoming. How does it feel to be in the spotlight? Yeah, it's interesting for me to be kind of thrust into the the forefront of the the question of climate change because I'm a a river scientist um, and I'm not used to working in such, I guess, hot topic areas. And, you know, the data that we're collecting, it's it's showing that Greenland is changing much more rapidly than it ever has. And I, I think these types of studies are absolutely critical for not only understanding what to expect, but being able to prepare for those changes. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Hey, it was great talking with you. When we come back, an interview with poet Lori Howe, and we'll also hear from one of America's finest Irish fiddle musicians. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. We're now joined by Laramie author Lori Howe. Her new book, Cloud Shade, Poems of the High Plains, is due out on November 18th. Poems from Cloud Shade have been nominated for a Pushcart Award, and the collection itself has been nominated for several first book awards. She begins our conversation by reading one of her poems called On the Ice. On the ice, dusk crosses slender blue wrists over the lake. Fishermen with augers and bright jackets haul away fish huts weathered as silver mines from the Sierra Madres. Clouds of fogged breath lace around the men as they load pickup beds with full ice boxes. Inside them, sleek, scaled bodies, yet breathing, twine together, delaying death with their fiercest heat. Tail lights recede, disappear. 
The lake reclaims its hush, begins to speak in night voice, whale tongue, and we slide out onto the pebbled eyelid of ice, cold coming through our thickest socks and boots. We wait, silent, hearing with our feet the seething of ultramarine blood, the twitching of bones, rumbles of omens, and restless spirits. The ice stretches and heaves, cracking like gunshot, and beneath that, glints and gleamings of sound like whales calling across the darkness. And we, small minutes of soft flesh and clacking teeth, stand perfectly still, as though we might translate this tectonic music into some hoped-for message from a generous God. The book is called Cloud Shade. It's poems of the high plains. Needless to say, uh, your uh, inspiration is this area. Did you consciously say, I'm going to do a book of poems about this area? No, it, it wasn't a conscious choice, more, more of um, a sort of ingrained or embedded longing. I, I, think, I think we write poems about the things that we long for and the things that we love. And I've lived in, in Laramie here on the High Plains for almost 20 years now, and it is, it's gotten in my blood. Would you like to read another one for us? Sure, thanks. Winter Archipelago, Vitavu. Mindless of time, these few last mammoths stood still until their stories turned to salt, written in heat and water on the inside of their igneous skins before they hardened, immortal. In softer seasons, humans come, fragile, bright, and tiny as beetles to try themselves against the placid stone. In winter's quiet, footed by untouched drifts and beaver dams closed up tight against the cold, Vitavu gazes out across the plains, a fine gauze of blowing snow, softening the world back to an ancient sea, lost to all but these elephant islands and their long memories of water. It's a place you've been to many times, and so will you bring all of those experiences maybe into one poem? It's hard to imagine being able to bring all of those experiences into one poem. I think that... Poems are really the story of a moment. Mm -hmm. A a snapshot. Mm -hmm. Would you like to close with a poem? Sure, thanks. En route to my father's funeral. En route to my father's funeral, I leave the interstate for a probable future of map wrestling in the weak dome light. And the Kansas moon stands up to look at me. Silvered against it, I feel a stray atom from when we were all still fish, twitch inside my bones. All highways head straight across Kansas, long, quiet stretches, the darkened arches of roofs. I imagine the people asleep in their beds, and they wrap their blankets tight inside me, turning over, breathing deep. At a pale crossroads, in an open shop two floors up, a welder works into the night. His arc is lonesome in the cool air, Gobbets of fire like unformed angels falling. As a child, I watched this same mercurial rain from my father's shop. Strange hobby, I thought, for the silent man who shared my own eyes, my own wrists. Not knowing his fire would buy my clothes and shoes come autumn. In the rearview mirror, I arched to see the last drops leap away. Strange, 
I tell the sleeping Kansans, this aching, this longing for a life I swear I never loved. Lori Howe, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Cloud Shade is available on her website, lauriehowauthor.com, and via several bookstores in the area. Lori will also be appearing at Legends Bookstore in Cody on Sunday, November 15th at 1.30, and be teaching a poetry workshop in Jackson at the Center for the Arts on December 5th. Washington State-based fiddler Randall Bays is considered one of America's best players of Irish traditional music. He came to prominence in the 1990s, playing with celebrated Irish fiddler Martin Hayes. And since then, Bays has cemented his own reputation as a master of the style. Randall Bays will be teaching and performing in Laramie on Sunday. As he told Wyoming Public Radio's Micah Schweitzer, the first time he experienced Irish music, the bug bit him hard. When I went to my first Irish session, I was just blown away. And just the energy of it and the atmosphere, but mainly the music itself. At the time, Randall Bays was exploring the classical guitar, but he set it aside for his new passion, the Irish fiddle. So I didn't touch the guitar for years, lots of years. I was all fiddle. And then I got involved with Martin Hayes, the fiddle player. Uh, We got to be friends and He asked me to play guitar on a recording for him, so I did that and kind of applied uh, the the classical guitar right-hand technique to the open tuning called Dadgad. concert in Laramie, so I kind of combined the two. I play uh, solo fiddle pieces, and then I do some guitar solo pieces. Now, as all of us can hear, uh, you're an American. You're not Irish. You grew up in Indiana. You've spent uh, decades now living in Oregon and Washington. And what I understand is that you began your own record label, Foxglove Records, because other labels weren't interested in an American playing Irish music. What's that experience been like uh, as, as an American who has really assimilated and become a master within a style uh, from a culture that's not your own? I, like I say, I just have always gone for the music that I wanted to hear and wanted to play. And Yeah, after working with Martin, I, I made a recording and I thought, oh, this... There, at the time, all the Irish music in the States was pretty much done by two big labels, mainly one. I thought, oh, they'll want to do this album for me. But there was no interest whatsoever. And I, I kind of realized, you know, from their point of view, it's probably a hard sell. But I've gotten so deeply into the whole Irish music world, the traditional music world, and, and as a result, Irish culture. And I see myself as a little bit of a bridge it's a funny thing not being born in Ireland, but finding oneself as uh, a carrier on of a certain tradition, you know. And I, I do find it's very important to me now, and I'm, I'm close with a lot of friends who are Irish and feel the same way. And it's just, I guess, a result of passions take you over the years, you know. Thank you. 
Along with recording and performing, teaching is central for Randall Bays. In addition to his performance in Laramie, he's also offering an afternoon workshop for acoustic musicians. I feel like there's, there's a certain kind of person who can kind of grab it and understand what's brilliant about it. And uh, uh, those are the people I am playing for and teaching to for the most part. It doesn't work the same way some of the larger forms of pop music work, like high volume can ruin it, uh, a really heavy bass and rhythm kind of a thing can ruin it. It's, it's kind of a thing where the audience has to reach out halfway and join the musician. So let me ask you about your concert that you're playing Sunday evening. Um, you're going to be playing solo, and a lot of people associate Irish music with, you know, sort of a high-energy live act, bunch of instruments, maybe playing very fast, and this is a different experience. Um, so how do you invite the audience into what might be different from what they've experienced before, a, a guy sitting alone on the stage with a fiddle? Well, I've done it quite a bit now, and I, I do understand it's not what people are used to. In the first place, small venues are where it works best. What I do is I talk to people, and uh, I've learned to kind of see it from their point of view. I try to blend in a little bit of explanation without preaching. <laughs> I can't stand that at gigs when the musician preaches to the audience. And I've tried to kind of blend in some explication without lecturing. I don't like lecturing at gigs either. <laughs> and then the the Irish thing, you know, is humor. And humor is so potent and it's such an important part of this whole music and helps us kind of not take ourselves too seriously. So I, I try to again like I talk to people and kind of, you know, put it in a context to kind of give them a chance to, like I say, reach out and be part of the experience instead of a passive listener. And really, at its root, in so many ways, you could say that this is the music of community. Exactly. It is community, and it builds community. And it often, if you go about it right, um, you can come back to the place at some point in the future and find certain kinds of people have come together around it. And that's one of the aspects of it that I love. That's fiddler and guitarist Randall Bays. He's teaching an open workshop on Irish music on Sunday afternoon at 3 and performing at 7 at the Lincoln Community Center in Laramie. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Micah Schweitzer. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Open Spaces. You can hear it again on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. You can also let us know what you thought of our stories or send us ideas for more. Anna Rader is our web editor. We also invite you to become a fan of the Wyoming Public Radio News Facebook page, and you can follow all of our reporters on Twitter. You can find me at Melody Edwards 3 Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.